Welcome to the podcast of America This Week, courtesy of the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM 129. If you want to listen to more, subscribe to Sirius XM and tune in on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Good day. This is Carrie Weber. I am executive editor of America Magazine, and you are listening to our Smart Catholic Jake on Faith and Culture. And I'm Sam Sawyer. Uh, so each week we offer news for, and analysis from the intersection of the church and the world gathered by the team at America Magazine. And uh, Father Matt Malone is not with us, as you may may guess. He's out this week, but I am back. You, and I, welcome back, Carrie. It's wonderful much. to have you. you. You may or may not have missed me, but either way, I'm here. And I'm happy to be here at ch- and chatting today with uh, Jim Keene, one of our senior editors at America. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> uh, we're, we're glad to have you. Uh, and so we have someone here to talk to us about a wonderful teacher who uh, is uh, someone that, as I mentioned, maybe a, some people in the church aren't really aware of, but should be. And here to tell us why is Father Patrick Ryan, who's a Jesuit and the Lawrence J. McGinley, McGinley Professor of Religion and Society at, at Fordham, as I said. And he wrote an article for us at America Magazine called The Model of a Catholic Teacher, Cardinal Avery Dulles. Father Patrick Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, now, as I mentioned, for folks who are not familiar with Cardinal Dulles, tell us a little bit about him. Avery Dulles was uh, the son of the man who eventually became the uh, Secretary of State under Dwight Eisenhower, but his family were, went back in the American history to the 18th century, they came from Ireland where they were Protestant uh, Scots settlers in Limerick. The name originally was Douglas, but they became Dulles in the pronunciation. Of course, the G is often aspirated in Irish. <laughs> and uh, so they uh, they came to the United States in the 18th century, and uh, three of them, three members of the family, the descent group, were secretaries of state for various presidents in the 19th and two in the 20th century. And the last was John Foster Dulles, who was Secretary of State for most of the time that Dwight Eisenhower was president. But uh, Avery Dulles himself uh, was a formidable intellect, uh, and uh, he was especially, uh, after his sophomore year, from his sophomore year on in college at Harvard College, when he became a serious student. He was an okay student before that, but he became serious after his sophomore year. He would have been all right to get into Harvard, probably. He, yeah. <laughs> he couldn't have done too poorly for himself. Yeah. Well, but, he, he had gone to Chote. He had a good education in Chote. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, this would have been his 100th birthday this year, right? Yes. Uh, and it's, uh, and he's old. someone you knew personally, right? Well, he taught me uh, all the time I was in theology at Woodstock in the late 60s. And uh, we became, middle 60s, I suppose, we became very good friends. And uh, uh, he also was famous for his sense of humor. And uh, I mentioned in the article that uh, at the, just before my ordination, I wrote an article called Why I Want to Be a Priest, which America published. And uh, it was a misprint that came into it. It said... Uh, I can't I, imagine I, that I, happening with us. Uh, well, that was before the current administration. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the word not dropped out of a sentence. And it said, I, it said uh, instead of saying, I do not feel cheated by the largely seminary education I had, it said, I do feel cheated by the man. <laughs> right, that's a different, different that was, that was message. That's quite different, especially <laughs> since it was being published the week I was being ordained. <laughs> and I had just left Woodstock. So I asked the editor of America at the time uh, to send a note to Woodstock. The mails worked at that time. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, they so sort of explained on the bulletin board that it was a misprint and what it should have said. And they also 
uh, corrected it in a later edition. But uh, Avery arrived up for the ordination. Of course, he had seen the note, but he couldn't resist. He gave me a copy of a book that I had proofread for him. And it said, uh, to Pat Ryan S.J. on the occasion of his ordination, the priestly ordination, and in memory of his seminary education. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've actually also got a, a wonderful story about Avery's sense of humor. Um, so when I was a Jesuit novice, I was uh, briefly, while I was on a hospital experiment, so working in, at Calvary Hospital in the Bronx, living at Spelman Hall in Fordham, where, uh, where Cardinal Dulles uh, lived, um, and he was not in the community at the time because Pope John Paul II had just died, and so he had gone over to Rome for the funeral, and then to join, he was too old to vote in the conclave that elected Benedict, but he was participating in the meetings before and after, and for uh, Benedict's um, inaugural mass as Pope. And he got back from all that and walked back into the community while we were all at dinner. And I think just because people were sort of no one knew what to do with a Jesuit cardinal who had just come back from the installation of a pope. So we, we all stood up and applauded. It seemed <laughs> kind of ridiculous. And uh, I, I kind of love that scene. Uh, and, and Avery sort of cocked an eyebrow and wryly and very dryly said, well, maybe next time. <laughs> Which turned out to be prophetic since we did in fact elect a Jesuit pope the next time. <laughs> Oh, that is great. Yeah, yeah. So in addition to making a number of very witty remarks, he wrote 23 books. Yes, right. So that um, he was quite the prolific author, um, including you know, Models of the Church, which is a, a real kind of um, monumental work. It is. It's unusual work in that he uh, he's taking certain things from a type of philosophical thought that looks at uh, reality from various through various models rather than to just try to uh, analyze it philosophically and uh, and uh, sort of outline the uh, the elements of it. He uh, so he in the book he has five originally, and then finally six in the second edition of the book. Models of the church, ways of looking at the church as the uh, the bride of Christ, as a servant of the world, and so forth and so on. So he has various ways of looking at the church in the book. He also did that when the book on Revelation, which is a harder read, but he also looks at Revelation that way and. Uh, he is extraordinary as an ability to penetrate that idea, those ideas. He was especially affected by certain type of scientific uh, thought, especially uh, uh, philosophical scientific thought, uh, and uh, he was particularly interested in the uh, ideas of um, of uh, uh, European philosophers who who took uh, all the sciences seriously and the way they do in in the universities, especially in Germany, where. Uh, theological faculties and philosophical faculties and uh, science, uh, hard science faculties are all together and appreciate each other's uh, 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 lives as as intellect. Uh, one of the things that we have in America is a, a religion is mainly studied at universities that have a religious tradition, but the secular universities uh, are sometimes uncomfortable and even more so on the lower level in high schools and undergraduate colleges where People are uncomfortable with the uh, discussion of religious questions, except as purely historical issues, like the history of art. Mm -hmm. Right. How do you think the models of the church shaped how we view how the church actually sort of works in the world? Well, I think it, it enables us to see that the, uh, uh, the, the church is multifaceted, that it, uh, it can fail sometimes in its mission, but it's not, it's not exhausted by any one 
model of the church. Uh, it's not simply a hierarchy descending from on high from uh, uh, the pope through the bishops, uh, the clergy, and so forth, but it's also a circle of people around Christ Himself, and that's that's one of the most important things. And it was he was affected by the Second Vatican Council. He was not an advisor at the Second Vatican Council, but he uh, one of his early books was. Uh, called Dimensions of the Church, and it basically sums up what is important in each of the major documents of the uh, Second Vatican Council. And that was one of the books I proofread for him, and he said in the, in the front of that one, he said, to Pat Ryan, who was responsible for any errors that still exist in the text. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I can attest um, that at least as recently as five years ago, when I was in theology studies, you know, in my seminary education, which I also do not feel cheated by, that... <laughs> Uh, models of the church was still being routinely assigned as, you know, and the text in any class on ecclesiology on the study of the theology of the church. That's real and, staying power. Yeah. And, um, but what I think was most striking about it was, you know, in theology grad school, um, well, as in most graduate programs that I'm aware of, you know, graduate students are quite often far more opinionated than they have warrant to be, right? <laughs> and 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 a lot of the work of grad school is sort of sanding the the edges off those opinions, or at least teaching people to to know how well founded they aren't before they go out and assert them globally. But um, one of the things I saw, I experienced myself, and I saw in my my classmates and my colleagues who were reading models of the church was that it was a really wonderful experience to see a first-rate mind taking different arguments seriously and saying, you can make this argument in these conditions and in this way, but you can also make this argument. And even when they don't overlap completely or you can't you know, get them to come to a single summation, there are still valid arguments going on here and we need to take them all seriously. Right, and I think, you know, Sam, one of the... Uh, uh, Cardinal Dulles was Father Ryan's predecessor as the Lawrence McGinley Chair at Fordham, and one of the things he became known for over the course of that was kind of as the great synthesizer of different thought in theology, which gained him audiences all across the spectrum from very traditionalist to very progressive Catholics as well. And also he was uh, willing to speak uh, in dialogue with uh, serious Lutheran theologians uh, and also with uh, those who come from the more evangelical traditions in the United States. So he was involved in that type of dialogue. The interesting thing about the book Models of the Church, many people seem to think, well, I like this model of the church, mm. or like that. And the whole point of model thought is that all the models are valid. Yes. And it's only by looking at all of them that you get a balanced view of the church. And that was also true of the models of Revelation. And also he had models of faith, which he has the second half of his book, The, the Assurance of Things Hoped For. All of the models are valid. Uh, they're not, none one of them is exhaustive, but all of them are valid. And I think it's important to, to realize that because otherwise people say, well, I'm for a servant church. Well, you also have to have other models of the church as well. Right. As if it's some kind of fast food menu and you yeah. only get to order one extra yeah. value meal. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, well, it, there's always that temptation to, to make the church in our image, right? And to make God in our image. And this kind of helps move us away from that to say, well, this is good, but here's another good, and here's another good, and all the goods should be working together toward a greater good. Um, Avery was uh, a person of tremendous uh, intellectual interest. As an undergraduate, he, he majored in uh, one of those programs they have at Harvard, which are very interesting, uh, history and literature. 
and he did Renaissance history and literature because he he knew Italian and French and Latin and Greek, and uh, he uh, so he's very interested. Came in, from a different era of education. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, he he was uh, as a result he was able uh, to uh, to. Uh, uh, get himself. He was interested in what was the background of the Renaissance, and then he realized how much of it was the development of the scholastic tradition, and uh, so that's when he he was introduced into the uh, thought of the medievals uh, in the, and he became fascinated with it. Eventually, his first book is actually uh, his senior thesis at Harvard. Harvard at that time used to publish senior theses, and. Uh, it was the Phi Beta Kappa Award of the Year. It's about uh, Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, <laughs> who was a, a great um, multifaceted Renaissance uh, Italian thinker and who was interested in everything. He was interested in what was known as the natural sciences, philosophy, theology, even Kabbalah uh, from the Jewish tradition. So he, uh, that, that sort of broadened his vision of the world, I think, very much. And uh, he, he finally uh, he realized that uh, that uh, the somewhat narrower science-centered uh, uh, orientation. He fin- when he finished secondary school at Choate, he varied whether he said he was an agnostic or an atheist at the time, but uh, he had certainly wandered far from the Presbyterianism of his parents. Uh, Avery, as I said, in his sophomore year, he got into that uh, Renaissance history and literature major at uh, Harvard. and. Uh, one day in his junior year, he realized as he was studying especially the, some of the medieval uh, sources of Renaissance thought, he, um, he was tired. He was in the Widener Library and decided to go for a walk on a February afternoon along the Charles. And one of the trees growing along the Charles, he stopped to examine it. And it was starting to blossom. And he, uh, he started looking at the little tender buds coming out. And he said he realized that they were following a law which he did not know in his own life. He said that night, for the first time since he was a boy, he prayed. And that was the beginning of the journey in his junior year. He was gradually instructed uh, through the faith, uh, in the Catholic faith. And in his, uh, he graduated in 1940, but he was formally received into the church in the fall of 1940 when he was a first semester law student at the Harvard Law School. There's a real moment of uh, humility in that in that realization. Uh, that's that's really a, an interesting way into the faith. Yes, it was. Um, I'm I'm sure it's interesting. His sister Lilius became uh, was ordained as a Presbyterian. She was a lay reader. I think she may have been actually ordained a minister finally, but the the rest of the family remained fairly religious. But uh, he said the uh, he himself had uh, had become uh, alienated from it for various reasons. Uh, in his freshman year of, of college, he he and two of his wayward freshman friends were sitting in the Bickford's cafeteria on the Harvard or Massachusetts Avenue. And they saw a taxi driver <clears throat> come in and uh, leave the keys in his ignition while he was coming in to get some fast food and run out. And they walked out and stepped into the cab and stole it. And they drove it into Boston <laughs> and they were arrested <laughs> and spent the weekend in jail. The other two were expelled. They were not doing very well in their way academically, but Avery was given a very, very stern <laughs> warning and uh, that he was never to steal taxis again. And uh, his uh, father wasn't around at the time, but his uncle Alan was, and Alan was brought up to 
look into Avery's case. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine he probably didn't steal any taxis after that, right? No, I think mm-hmm. as far as I know, he stayed away Not until his later years. He, he looked sometimes longingly at the wheel, but <laughs> <laughs> he was the worst driver, by the way, I've ever He driven. was terrible. He was he an was awful driver. awful driver. <laughs> he, uh, he was famously a car, he had this old uh, battered up car and it broke down. Uh, he always would try to avoid the tolls on bridges, so he went through the... Uh, uh, bri- the bridges that separate connect Manhattan and the Bronx without tolls. Yeah, and the car broke down about one in the morning, and uh, he sat there while other people were going around trying to find somebody to repair the car. He stood there with one of the other Jesuits discussing the theological issue they've been on before. <laughs> <laughs> he was when I was a student at Fordham. He was somewhat infamous for still attempting to drive off campus and causing people to leap out of the way, right and left. <laughs> Finally, his superior uh, forbade him to drive anymore. He uh, ground his teeth a few times on the subject. <laughs> Sister Anne-Marie Kermsey, his longtime research associate at Fordham, uh, for the 20 years he had the McGinley chair, uh, she often turned out to be the, the driver in need when he had to get places. <laughs> Could you say a little bit about um, how he came to his Jesuit vocation? Did he meet the Jesuits at Harvard when he was entering the church, or did that happen later? He um, he met Jesuits who were uh, graduate students at Harvard at that time, and uh, some of them are people who eventually taught at various Jesuit colleges and universities. But one of them was his instructor. But he just uh, he first of all was becoming a Catholic. Then uh, I think realized as as the time was going on, he wanted to enter the Jesuits right after his uh, conversion. But the Second World War broke out, and we have a rule in the society about. Uh, People who have newly converted either from another form of Christianity or from another faith have to wait three years, lest they confuse the enthusiasm, the consolation of conversion with the consolation of a vocation. Very so, wise. That yeah, seems sir, reasonable. Yeah, it was, yeah. But anyway, he, um, he uh, had to put it off for a few years, but then the war broke out, so he got a commission in the Navy. And uh, so he was... Uh, some of his stories from the Navy are very interesting. He got the Croix de Guerre from the French because he was French-speaking, so he could. some of the free French had uh, taken their ships out of and were in the Mediterranean, and he went on to one of the French ships. But he also tells a part when they were in the Caribbean, he said, we spent the entire night shelling what we thought was a submarine, and when the dawn came up, we realized it was a rock. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> but he, uh, at the end of the war, he was the war had ended in Europe and hadn't ended in in the, in the Asia yet. So he, um, at the end of the war in Europe, he was stationed in Naples. And there he and several of his fellow uh, Navy uh, people in Naples came down with poliomyelitis. So he, he thought that was going to be the end of his entering the Jesuits. Mm-hmm. So he, he went back to Washington, and he was in a health facility in Washington there run by the Navy, I suppose the Naval Medical Center. And uh, there he went through a lot of therapy and he came back. He still had to do therapy, but he did it as an outpatient uh, from the naval uh, medical, the uh, naval uh, base in Boston, because he didn't want to apply to the Society of Jesus from such and such a ward in the hospital. <laughs> it looked too bad. So he uh, he had a loping walk all his life, and he uh, he looked uh, as one person described him in the poem like a. a so hangers on on a uh, sort of uh, hat rack. <laughs> That's yeah. John Larue. John Larue, yes, yes. yeah. He, he uh, was fairly sort of. He, he was. Thin, he was. He was over tall. six feet tall, and he weighed about 130 pounds. Yeah. And uh, 
when Sister Emery said when he was uh, getting honorary degrees, they'd ask for his dimensions for the academic robe. They said, there must be some mistake here. And she'd say back, no, there's no mistake. <laughs> he is six foot two and he is 130 pounds. <laughs> so, yeah. But he, that was partly from the polio. But he was, the family generally tended to be rather thin. His older brother uh, lived longer than Avery, but he died about six months before Avery. His older brother was a university professor in the University of Texas to the end of his life, and he didn't come to the uh, installation of Avery as a cardinal in uh, in Rome. He said, not for any prejudice or anything. He just said, I have class that day. Mm. <laughs> and Avery thought that was perfectly sensible. I, and, and he would. Actually, speaking of class, because, I mean, the the headline on the article that you wrote for Ameri- that is in America now and available at americamagazine.org slash serious is... Um, the model of a Catholic teacher. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experience as his student, what what he was like in the classroom, because certainly uh, the stories that have come to me about him in the classroom uh, uh, have a certain character. Well, <laughs> he, he himself used the phrase used about his father, dull, duller, dullest. And, uh, he, he, he had no techniques at all. He simply stood at the... At the uh, Podium, his, his with one hand he would just pull out his uh, as if he had a beard, but he had no beard. He'd pull out it, he'd pull out his flesh from his face, <laughs> and he would make gestures, as I said, in the general direction of hell. Then uh, <laughs> he'd write a word or two on the board, and he droned. But it was the content was everything. Uh, he, uh, I, I just recently met somebody else who had had him as a teacher and said the same thing. Uh, you just were just. Uh, Mesmerized. If you were theologically serious, you were mesmerized by the content. But uh, at one time, he, if somebody asked a question. I said, uh, "Is it possible that in uh, the life to come, we could still be on a learning curve about God?" And he said, "Yes." He said, "I think, uh, being, since we're finite, we, we would still be learning." And somebody in the classroom just sighed. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned that uh, he dealt with polio. The after effects uh, yes. came back to, to In the home. last two or three years of his life, uh, suddenly uh, we noticed that his, uh, he, first of all, a couple of falls he took by, on the campus. But uh, uh, then uh, about a year and a half before he died, I had been away in the Africa during the summer. When I came back, he, um, his speech was slurred. And I, I thought, was he having a stroke? But what it was is the beginning of the return of the secondary effects of polio. Finally, he was almost like somebody with ALS. He, uh, at the end of his life, he could only move his eyes. Oh. And uh, he had to, uh, with an a, a alphabet board, indicate what he, what he was uh, wanted to say. Well, and that's actually how he wrote his final, his final speech, right? Yeah. Yes. W- one of the most moving things I've really ever seen at a lecture is at Avery's last lecture at Fordham in 2008, yeah. he went to bless the um, audience and needed to use his left hand to raise his right arm to give the blessing. Yeah. Oh, wow. Hey. It seems like there's a tremendous amount, again, of that humility there in, in his ability to uh, still live out his ministry in a really powerful way. and not. I think it would be very easy for someone to kind of take these physical limitations and then just say, you know, they wanted to and end that kind of ministry and their their time in the public and you know sit in the room pray feel yeah. sorry for yourself whatever uh, and it sounds you you write in in the article that he says as i became increasingly paralyzed and unable to speak he was able to identify with the many paralytic and mute persons in the gospel so it, it not only was he uh approached with humility it brought him closer to god it did and it was uh 
extraordinary to see the the rector who was the rector in one of his last years as uh, uh, almost his last years as uh, McGinley professor uh, predeceased him of cancer. I remember Avery being wheeled over to the university church to uh, attend the funeral, and he was sitting in a wheelchair and uh, fairly helpless. But a uh, uh, the president of the university was celebrating the university, and he asked me to take a stole over to Avery and put it around his shoulders so they could receive communion with the stole on. And uh, to bring him communion, it was extraordinary. This man who had taught me so much and had so much effect on my life now, and so uh, so totally helpless, I had to give him communion on the tongue because he mm. couldn't put up his hands to receive it. Mm. It's it's really beautiful, uh, that, and that's you know he you write that he he also wrote I know well that this that God's power can be made perfect in infirmity mm-hmm. that that even in these weaknesses even in these challenges there's God. Yeah, he, he died on December twelfth, and uh, one of the things I was informed that week I was then the vice president for University Mission and Ministry, and they said uh, you're the uh, uh, master of ceremonies at the various masses. And I said the what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not famous for my ability to do these things. So I asked the director of campus ministry to just stand next to me and tell me what to do next. <laughs> but finally, at the last funeral was down, uh, the actual funeral was in the cathedral. And uh, it was a cold December day, but uh, I had to walk down. There were several masters of ceremonies there. I was only the third assistant of the master <laughs> of ceremonies. But I was walking down, trying to keep my hands together, looking pious. And in a newly bought black cassock I had gotten, uh, for the occasion, I still have it in the closet someplace. And uh, as I was walking down, they opened up the doors of St. Patrick's Cathedral, and there was the statue of Atlas mm. in Rockefeller Center. I said, "What a contrast! Yeah. This this muscular uh, 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 Atlas symbol of Radio City of America, and uh, and then uh, this this humble man finally going to his uh, eternal reward." But he was a, a very moving event, uh, that's, that uh, funeral mass. Well, before we go, we should mention that on September 24th, Fordham is hosting an event to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the birth of Cardinal Avery Dulles. And information about that is available at americamagazine.org slash Sirius if you want to find out more about that. So thank you so much, Father Patrick Ryan. We really appreciate your being here with us. We appreciate your wonderful article. If you want to read it, The Model of a Catholic Teacher, Cardinal Avery Dulles, uh, is available, as Father Sam Sawyer said, at americamagazine.org slash Sirius. And... You can subscribe to America at 1-800-627-9533. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, etc. Thanks very much for joining us today. We'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to the podcast of America This Week, courtesy of the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM 129. If you want to listen to more, subscribe to Sirius XM. And tune in on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.